0: Last week we uh, were in sort of the middle part of Galatians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, we'll be continuing in Galatians 2. You remember it was Paul, the Apostle Paul's rebuke of Peter at the church potluck because of where Peter chose to sit and eat. And there were a couple of lessons that we're taking away from this. And last week we talked mainly about how Paul was making a big deal about this. It was a you're sort of treating it as a federal offense, what Peter did, where he decided to eat because of what it reflected, we believed about the gospel, or, or more accurately, because it contradicted what we know the gospel to be true. And so the action of Peter was not in line with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel was the key phrase. And uh, so we looked at how to segregate yourselves from a people or to consider a certain type of people unclean or a certain behavior to be unrighteous uh, when it's really just a tradition. Um, it was rebuilding ethnic barriers. It was leading people back into bondage to self-righteousness, trying to seek righteousness by the law uh, in terms of the dietary laws. Uh, it was just unkind and unfriendly. It was hurtful. It was none of the things that the gospel represented. And so Paul rightly got very upset in terms of how this behavior in Christians does not properly communicate and in fact it leads people away from the gospel when we behave that way and so the application was to think about our own lives and think about the things that we do maybe even unconsciously or that we hold sort of special in our lives that we think is important but that is uh, actually distracting or taking people away from the gospel. And now the second part of the lesson is what we're going to get into this week. And I said it was a two-part lesson, because it's not just on behavior and on action, but it also rebuked, or, or Paul rebuked Peter, because what Peter was doing repudiated the truth of the gospel in terms of justification by faith alone, because... Peter was leading to people to believe that they somehow needed to add something to what Christ had accomplished. They had to follow the dietary laws or they had to associate with certain people in a religious context in order to be justified. And so Paul now goes on in uh, the remainder of Galatians chapter 2 to really hammer home in his rebuke of Peter the emphasis on justification by faith alone. And it's very exciting here because Paul is is teaching some profound theological truths in verses 15 to 21. Uh, but he's at the same time, he's still very worked up, okay, as he's writing this letter. And we got to remember, he's he's writing this letter to the Galatians, remembering a time that took place in Antioch. But he's still really exercised here, okay? He's really worked up at remembering what happened in Antioch. And he's quite excited as he's writing here. And so as he's Illustrating these profound truths, he's also emotional. And, and I'm positive that the Holy Spirit intended for the scripture that Paul was writing here for that emotion to come across. This whole letter really is quite emotional for us on purpose. So that we would feel it too. That, that, uh, that we would feel what Paul is feeling in his defense of the gospel. We should, we should be sort of caught up in his emotion. You know, if you wanted a sort of cool and reasonable teaching on the topic of justification, the Holy Spirit has given us that in Scripture as well. You could go to Romans chapter 3 to 6, you could go to 2 Corinthians 3, you could go to Ephesians, and you will get this same argument of justification by faith alone in a much more relaxed and cool and level-headed manner. But here, Paul is really caught up in it, and that's exciting. But at the same time, it makes his sentence structure a little bit strange, and his thoughts are kind of jumping around a little bit, even in the middle of sentences, but we're going to unpack those things. And it makes it a very technical passage, and so we're going to have to slow down here and deal with the text in a bit of a technical manner. And uh, and I think we'll see some truth that comes out and applies to our own lives. And, uh, and for the sake of time and, and because of that. We're just going to deal with verses 15 to 17 today, but uh, I'm going to read the whole rest of the chapter because we're going to deal with the rest another Sunday. Um, and just to give you a little bit of context for those of you that weren't, I, I just gave it to you there, but Peter was eating with the Gentiles and then when other Jews came, he drew back and he stopped eating with the Gentiles so that other Jewish Christians and even Barnabas started to imitate Peter in his refusal to eat with Gentiles because they ate the wrong things and they were unclean and uh and it and so paul basically loses his composure a bit and he and he confronts peter on this issue and uh and then we move into his explanation of of the theological reasons for his confrontation in galatians two fifteen to 21 and i'll just pray before we read father god again we're about to look into your word and uh, into these things you have preserved by your holy spirit i ask that you would uh come and uh, open our ears and open our hearts and our minds so that we can perceive these things that are spiritual and uh, that we can understand what it is that you are teaching, um, not just the wider church and, and us in general, but each of us individually, that we would perceive what we are to take away from this scripture today. In Christ's name, amen. Galatians two fifteen to 21. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be, for if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This has been the reading of God's Word. So what is Paul's argument here? And if you come to a technical bit of text like this, you might, like I do, mark in your Bibles in order to see what's going on, and it might look something like this. This is how I sort of slowed down and started and I know there's 40 or so of you out there that know exactly what this is, because I know you're doing it. But when you come to a technical part of Scripture, you need to slow down and mark what is going on to sort of follow along. And so I'm just going to leave that up there, and you can see why I've highlighted these things the way I have, and, and maybe what they reveal. So he starts out in his argument by saying, look, we are, we're Jews by nature. In other words, you know, Peter... You know, me, Barnabas, we're Jews by nature. In other words, we have the law. We have the prophets. Our people receive the word of God. We have the ceremonial and the moral teaching. We have the promises of God. We have a literal covenant with God as Jews. And we have the sign of the covenant. The Gentiles don't have any of those things, okay? They don't have any of that. And so Gentiles according to a Jew, are by default sinners. And that's why he says, you know, we are not sinners from among the Gentiles, or we're not Gentile sinners. Because to a Jew, if you didn't have the law, you were clearly breaking the law. If you weren't part of the covenant, clearly you couldn't be approved of by God. And so just by being a Gentile, you were a sinner. But Paul's argument is, it doesn't matter, right? His next word is, nevertheless, or you could translate it just, but, So Peter, you and I are Jews by nature. We have all the stuff that comes along with being a Jew in relationship to God. We're not sinners like the Gentiles. But in spite of that, we know, and then Paul repeats three times what he knows and Peter knows, and all Jewish Christians know. And you can see the repetition by the marking. Justified, justified, justified. Law, law, law. Faith, believed, faith. You can see that there in the passage. He says three times, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says it another way. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Still didn't get it? He says it a third time. Since by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, which is a paraphrase from Psalm 143.2, which says no living man is righteous or just. Same word. So three times, Paul restates his argument. And the first argument, is, you could say, is from apostolic authority. He says, we have already settled this. We have already agreed that Jesus taught. You remember, twice we had councils in Jerusalem. And we, by apostolic authority, have agreed that man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, he makes his argument by apostolic experience. He says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. He says, this is what we experienced. So we have what we agree of as doctrine. We also have our own experience that this is true, that faith in Jesus Christ brings justification and not the law. And then finally, his third argument in this same sentence is by scriptural testimony by paraphrasing or quoting Psalm 143 2, he says, we already knew this from Scripture because Psalms already tells us that no living man is righteous. Or you could say that by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And so Paul says, any moral advantage that you think you had from birth, it doesn't count for justification. It doesn't qualify you before God. He's saying, Peter, Barnabas, Right? We're Jews. I get it. We think we have some sort of special qualification from birth, but it doesn't matter because how you're born and under the law and being a Jew and having the promise and the sign of the covenant doesn't justify you. And by justify, we could say qualify, because it's important that we understand what we're talking about in justification. What Paul is talking about here is our right standing with God. The fact that we can have a relationship with God when that relationship has been broken by our sin, something has to change in us for our justification or for our qualification, you could say, in this context. So how does that apply for us? Well, I think Paul would say today, look, you you may be a pastor's kid. You know, your dad may be an elder in the church. Your parents taught Sunday school for 20 years and you did family devotions every night and you've only ever watched G-rated movies, right? You did a short-term missions trip. You never did drugs. You were a virgin when you were married. You went to Bible college. You excelled at living the moral life. That does not justify you before God. That does not qualify you. There is no advantage to that in terms of your justification and standing before God. In terms of qualification. When it comes to justification, you are no more justified by your heritage or by your morality than someone who was born in the back room of a bar and grew up dealing drugs and drinking and womanizing and cussing like a lumberjack. And I'm sorry if you're a lumberjack. I don't know if they cuss or not. I just, when I was writing it, I just imagined if you're out alone in the woods and a tree falls on your foot, words might come out, I just imagined. So... But neither of those two people can justify themselves before God. Neither of them can save themselves by their own works. Neither of them can point to their family or their heritage or what they've done in their life and say, God, you should accept me. It doesn't matter how many trips to Africa you make or how many wells you drill or how many badges are on your Sunday school sash. Neither of them can justify themselves before God. Paul is saying here we have to get over ourselves when it comes to justification. All those pins you earned for attendance and memory verse don't make you more justifiable to God. And you have to understand that we're talking strictly about justification here, about being righteous and counted righteous before God and how we're qualified to be saved. Because there are non-justifying advantages to our heritage, okay? There are non-justifying advantages to growing up in a home where you are cared for and encouraged and brought in regular contact with the Word of God and His redeeming message and the Bible. I mean, we just dedicated a family here to that very premise, that there is an advantage to growing up with that heritage. But those advantages don't equal salvation. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, just because you grew up in a Christian home and you did all the right things... That somehow God is smiling on you a little wider than he smiles on somebody else in the world. He's not. You are no more justified than anyone else. Those advantages don't equal justification. You cannot rest on them or count on them. In Romans chapter 3, where Paul is also talking about this, he asks on the same subject, he asks rhetorically, what advantages are there for being a Jew? And he answers his own question, and he says, great, there's many. We have teaching and the prophets and the law and guidance and government, like all these things that we have as Jews. There's a great advantage to be a Jew, but not in qualifying us, not in justifying us. That only comes about by faith. And so as people with a Christian upbringing, big advantage. You start your journey to Jesus perhaps you know farther along the path. You You start with good coaches and good training. Don't knock the advantages that you have. But your parents and your training don't justify you. There's only one who qualifies, only one who justifies everyone by the same method. Everyone comes to justification and to salvation by the same means, not by what we did or what we will ever do, but by what Jesus did on the cross and trusting by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that that is sufficient. And so then Paul's passionate argument continues in verse 17, and his sentence structure starts to fall apart a little bit as he tries to cram some stuff into one sentence here, and and it turns at the end into another rhetorical question. He says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Okay, what's he saying here? What's his argument? What is, what's he trying to get across? And there's, there's a couple of different ways this sentence can be interpreted as you're reading it. Uh, but the most common two or three really say similar things. And, th- and there's two ways as we're reading this and we're, we're looking at the context that we can unpack this. And, and the first one is the immediate context of this argument. So as you're reading through this uh, section of Scripture, you would look at this sentence and you would say, how does this sentence, what is Paul communicating, what does the author intend to say in the immediate context of what he's saying. And in the immediate context of this argument, it appears that Paul is saying something like this. If we ourselves, so he's talking again about Jews, okay? That is, if we Jews who have accepted Christ and are therefore seeking now to be justified only by faith and not justified by the law, if we're somehow wrong about that, and in fact, all this time we have found out that we're actually sinning, in other words, the Judaizers are correct. We, we should have still been following the law. We should have still been eating at separate tables, and we should have still been honoring the, the ceremonies. So he's saying if we Jews, while seeking to be justified by grace alone and faith in Christ, if it has turned out that we are actually been sinners this whole time, then is Christ Jesus a minister of sin? That's the key phrase. So Paul is saying, if that's true, then that makes Jesus a minister of sin. Because what we're doing is we're just doing what Jesus taught us. So are you saying that when Jesus was teaching us then to sin, when he said, you know, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but actually what comes out of a man, or when he taught us that I have come to fulfill the law, or when Jesus said that whoever believes in me will not perish, that all that time that Jesus was pointing us away from the law and pointing us towards himself, he was actually teaching us to sin? He was serving sin, and literally the word there is diaconus, where we get the word deacon. Are you saying Jesus was a deacon of sin while he was teaching us this? And you can see why Paul is worked up here, and he's excited. He says, may it never be, or it shall never come to pass that Jesus would ever be a servant of sin and lead us astray. And at this point, if you're like me, you maybe imagine Gandalf standing on the narrow bridge in the mines of Moria, right? You shall not pass, right? And that's Paul, okay? He's like, if this is what you're saying, you will not pass. May it never be that Christ Jesus was leading us into sin, that Jesus was a minister of sin when he pointed us away from the law and towards himself. So that's within the context of the Judaizers here in this argument. There's another way you could interpret this verse, which says virtually the same thing. And it's another good way to interpret it is by looking at the words that Paul uses here and see that it's very similar in what it conveys uh to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and I'm not going to go there because it take a lot of time to go through there but but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul makes an almost identical argument and so this sentence here in this letter that was written before 2 Corinthians this might be the nucleus of an argument that Paul already had in his mind that he elaborates later in Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul calls Moses a minister of death And he calls Moses a minister of condemnation because Moses brought the law to Israel from God. And so you can see the similarity, and this might be what Paul is getting across here in verse 17. When Moses brought the law, starting with the Ten Commandments, he laid down rules. And so Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets, with the commandments on them, and one of those commandments is, have no other gods before me. And while he's holding these tablets and he's making the statement of the law, there's a golden calf just in the background right behind him, right? And so he starts to say, you know, don't covet and don't lie and don't have other gods before me. And all the nation of Israel is at this point looking at their feet, shuffling uncomfortably. Because what has happened is when the law has come, it's proven their condemnation. Right? This is why in the New Testament, the law is talked about as a law of death or a law of condemnation, and Moses then is a minister of death and a minister of condemnation, because when the law comes, it simply reveals how much we're breaking the rules. It doesn't stop us from breaking the rules, it just shows us that we are breaking the rules. And so the law shows us how far we all are from being justified by our own behavior, by our own works, the law brings condemnation and the law brings death. In 2 Corinthians 3, this is why Paul says to, that Moses was a minister of sin and death and not of salvation and life. So if this is Paul's argument in this verse, then here's how it would go. He would be saying something like this. If, if we're supposed to be justified by works all along, again, if the Judaizers are right and how we behave and how we work in life is our justification, then that means that all Jesus did was come to add new rules to the rules that Moses already gave us. If Jesus came to bring us a new list of rules, then that means he didn't come to fulfill the law, but to add to the law. You know, maybe he brought some new rules because the old ones were too hard for us, and so he gave us some easier ones. But we know that's not true, because Jesus himself said, the law says don't murder, but I say it means don't even think badly of someone or or think somebody's a fool. The law says don't commit adultery, but I say don't even look lustfully at the wrong person. So Jesus came to make it clear that the law condemns. But Jesus didn't come to give us a new set of stone tablets. Jesus didn't come to give us a new law. He came to fulfill that old law that was impossible for us to fulfill. You know, remember what Paul has already quoted from Psalms just a sentence earlier. By works of the law, no man shall be justified. And so Paul's argument, if you interpret verse 17 this way, is, was Jesus then a minister of sin? Was he like Moses? Was he just a minister of condemnation and death? And his answer is the same. May it never be. Cue Gandalf on the bridge. You shall not pass. Paul says, either way, this shall not be. Jesus is not a minister of sin. He did not teach us to sin by following the law, and he did not come to add to the law to just show our sin and our death more. And that's the problem. Jesus would serve the function of death and condemnation. It's unthinkable to think that. But listen, Paul says, that's where the argument of justification by human effort eventually takes you. You cannot escape this conclusion of Paul's. Paul says, your theology is clearly flawed. Because if you follow the idea that you can somehow work to accomplish qualification before God, then you end up making Christ a minister of death and condemnation and sin. Jesus didn't teach us to sin when he told us the law was fulfilled in him, to believe in him and be saved. And he also didn't come to give us more rules that we will still fail to follow. You, follow. Instead, Jesus has come saying, believe on me and be saved. I've come to take away the sins of the world. I've come to take the wrath of God. By faith in me, you will be justified, is Paul's argument. And nothing else will stand. And then Paul adds on in verse 18, he says, what would really make me a sinner? You want to talk about what would really make me a sinner? It's if I rebuild that old system that I destroyed. He says in verse 18, For if I rebuild that that I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, what is it that Paul once destroyed? What is it that Paul sees that he is in danger or that Peter is in danger of rebuilding? He sees what, what might be rebuilt is justification by our own works. He says, this is what I destroyed. I destroyed this idea that we will be justified by our work, and I never want to rebuild it. Because if I rebuild it, and he And you'll notice in this verse he's used the pastoral technique of saying I now in order to sort of soften the message. You'll notice I do that. I'm giving away a trick. You know, When I want to say something really hard, I include myself in it so it doesn't seem as hard on you guys. And that's what Paul does here, right? He says, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, and he is in no danger of rebuilding it, okay? He's talking about Peter. But he says, if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says, if Peter, if, if we rebuild that old system of justification by our works, then all we do is prove our sinfulness again. We just prove we're sinners. Our disqualification from the salvation that we're actually seeking. And Peter already knows the legal system of justification has never worked. right? Paul has been referring to this meeting that he had with Peter and with others in Jerusalem. And look at what Peter had already said in Acts 15. This is at this council of Jerusalem that they just got done talking about. He says in Acts fifteen ten to 11, this is Peter speaking. Okay, this is Peter. He says, Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So this is Peter back in Jerusalem. He's the one that's saying, why would you do this? Why would you put the the yoke of the law that our forefathers couldn't bear and we couldn't bear, why would we put that on the Gentiles? They're saved by grace the same way we are. And so Peter knows that the law never got anyone ever closer to God. The law only revealed the distance between us and God. But the grace of Jesus for Jews and Gentiles, for the... All ethnicities, for the whole world, for every person, the grace of Jesus and faith in Him and what He did on the cross is able to save, able to bridge that gap. So now, when is it that we, like Peter, might start to rebuild that old self justification, that old self righteousness that was destroyed by Jesus? When does that happen in our lives? And I think it can happen various ways, and it's subtle. It may be that we think we need to do some sort of penance for our misdeeds and misbehavior, right? I've been a bad person, so now I've got to do something to prove something or to pay for what I've done for God. That Jesus' work on the cross wasn't enough to pay for our sin, and so we have to punish ourselves, or God needs to punish us, or we need to do penance. You know, in the most sort of extreme case or example you might have is the Catholic idea of purgatory, Right? The notion that by doing good works here on earth, you take time off of years that you will spend in purgatory after you die, and that it's really you know, the work that you do that detracts from your punishment. That's a dangerous thought. Right? That's a dangerous form of self-righteousness, that, that we somehow work to earn some form of merit from God. Or maybe in a less Catholic sense, just the the self-inflicted notion that we project onto God that he's displeased with us until we pull our socks up and start working harder for him. Or it shows up when we bind other people to our own notions of goodness. We expect others to value our preferences the same way we do, and if they don't, then they must be a little bit farther away from God than, than I am. This is the type of thinking that's dangerous because it nullifies justification by faith alone. Or even the more subtle notion of our confidence in our salvation increases with the good lives that we live. That we just have to have enough stars on our Sunday school chart that God will smile on us or that we will you know, be found in the balance okay at the end of time. That does damage to the justification by faith alone. Or maybe it just shows up in our prayer life. How many of us have had a day like this? You get up on the wrong side of the bed, and you stub your toe on the leg of it. And uh the kids make you late for work, and so you skip breakfast to get there on time. And the boss calls you into his office, and he says the company's downsizing, and the office may be closing. And at the water cooler, somebody t- starts to talk about a funeral they were at and their thoughts on their spiritual life, but you just brush them off. And you get home, and you argue about the dishes and the laundry. As you get into bed that night, you you start to pray, and you say, Dear Heavenly Father, this has been a rotten day. I'm sorry, but you saw it was bad. I'll try and do better tomorrow. Bless everybody. Amen. then you wake up the next morning. You have another day, and you wake up refreshed, 30 minutes early. The birds are singing. The kids made breakfast. It's bacon. And (laughs) you get to work on time, and the boss calls you into his office, and he says, the region is expanding and you know he's kind of got his eye on you for a management position and you're thinking yes and at the water cooler that coworker you know has the audacity to raise another question very tentatively about faith and you testify with grace and humility and insight and you don't lead him to Jesus on the spot but he does agree to come to church on Sunday and bring his family with him and when you get home supper is amazing the kids are angels and you have a great devotional time as a family And when you go to pray that night, your prayer is like this. Eternal and majestic Heavenly Father, I come into Your presence in humility In the fullness of your grace, I bow before you at the end of this day, and I thank you for the magnificence of all your blessings. And upon me, your humble servant, and then you're praying about propitiation and reconciliation, and you're praying for people at church, and you're praying for the gospel to go forth in the kingdom of God, and you're praying for missionaries in the whole world and everybody. And at the end of your prayer, you eventually lay back your head on your pillow and you go to bed justified because you had a good day. And you've been a pagan both times because how your day goes and what you do does not justify you. You enter into the presence of God by the work of Christ on the cross. Every time you enter into his presence, not because of how great you thought you did that day. You have the audacity, you have the arrogance to think that you enter into the presence of God with merit based on how good a person you were that day or how things went. And that's paganism. Paul would say, could anything be more false? May it never be. Could anything be more demeaning to grace or more destructive to the work of Jesus on the cross? And yet we do that kind of thinking all the time. I do. But we put in peril the true teaching of the gospel. Understanding the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, the exclusive sufficiency of the work of Jesus on the cross is not some esoteric doctrine for theological eggheads. When it's rightly understood, it shapes who we are before God. It touches all of our lives. And even when we're serving, we serve out of gratitude for what Christ has already done for us. And we catch ourselves on our pride and our self-righteousness again and again and again because we don't merit justification by our own works. Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. That's how we're justified. That's how we're able to enter into the presence of God. In the same confident way every time. And so now when we come to communion. We come to a time when we're going to very meaningfully enter into the presence of God. Through the sacrifice that has already been accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And so I give you this little exercise. I want you to think about. What it might be in your life that you're putting your hope in that isn't Jesus. Any little thing that you put confidence in before God that isn't Jesus' work on the cross. And that you have to point to and say, I count this in my favor. Find that thing in your life. Or maybe it's some petty thing that you point into in others and say, well, that must count against them. Either way. Or just a sense that you have to somehow do penance. Just fix that thing in your mind, or even write it down. And, and while we're doing communion, just, just bring it up before God and say, God, I'm not justified by anything that I do or that I am. I'm justified only in one way before you, by the righteousness that you see in Christ Jesus, because he went to that cross to pay for my sins. That's the only reason I'm qualified. It's the only reason anyone in the world is qualified. No matter how good I think I live or how bad I think someone else lives, we're all qualified exactly the same way.